Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today we talk with Andrew Kerberin about Saudi involvement in 9-11 and Assad Haider about identity and politics. First, Andrew Kerberin. Many electrons have been excited by conspiracies around 9-11, but the only one for which there's any evidence gets comparatively little attention, Saudi involvement. Most of the hijackers are Saudi, as was bin Laden himself. There have been hints of more from the first, but much effort has been devoted to suppressing the news. The congressional report on the affair was issued in December 2002, minus 28 pages, which were classified because they contained sensitive material about Saudi Arabia. Soon after the publication of the Bodlerized report, Florida Senator Bob Graham pressed for the release of the 28 troublesome pages, but the leadership of the Senate Intelligence Committee rejected his request, saying publication could adversely affect ongoing counterterrorism efforts. Finally, after years of lobbying by Graham, a few other congresspeople, and the 9-11 families, the 28 pages were declassified in July 2016. A few months later, Congress passed, over Obama's veto, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, JASTA, which lifted the immunity against lawsuits Saudi Arabia and other states enjoyed as sovereign entities. In March of this year, 1,500 survivors and 800 family members of 9-11 victims filed a class-action lawsuit against the Saudi government. Andrew Coburn, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, has a piece in the suit in the October issue of the magazine. Unusually for Harper's, which is tight about sharing things on the Internet, they've also posted the article on the magazine's website, harpers.org. Andrew Coburn. Before we get to the, uh, the topic of this suit, uh, you open uh, your piece in Harper's uh, with a, a rich anecdote about uh, Donald Trump and his uh, ass-kissing of Saudi royalty. Could you just recount that for uh, scene-setting purposes? Sure. Well, as, you know, as we all knew, um, Trump... When his first overseas trip, his first foreign leader he went to see was the king of Saudi Arabia. He went there in May. And to hear him tell it, he was greatly impressed with the wisdom, sagacity of King Salman, the uh, ruler of Saudi Arabia, and just thought he was the best guy. He, uh, as I described, when he, he went after that, he went to Brussels to talk to the NATO leaders, and he was berating them and slapping them about the face and ears for not paying enough for defense. Or, um, but he took time off to say that he'd been with King Salman, a wise man, so kind, just wonderful talking to Salman, which for those who know Saudi Arabia a little, sounds a little odd because um, King Salman is widely reported to have dementia. Um, it isn't really too sure of where he is or who he's talking to most of the time when he's in any kind of public setting and sort of engaged in some sort of conversation or making statements, uh, there's usually a big vase of flowers in front of him with a TV monitor, concealing a monitor, off which he reads the words he's saying. And in the corner of the room or behind a curtain somewhere, Wizard of Oz-like, there's a fast-typing aide sort of putting in King's words. So um, there's a story that once when, when Obama went to see him and... Uh, Obama was sort of talking to him, uh, trying to sell him airplanes or something, and the king just sort of wandered off, uh, forgot where he was. So for Trump to be overwhelmed by the wisdom of King Salman tells you something about, uh, certainly tells you something about King uh, Donald Trump. Well, Trump might feel some affinity with him, having behaved similarly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, exactly. So, so this uh, lawsuit now is really ripening. We had uh, the congressional report on 9-11 uh, with the 28 censored pages. They were released, what, a year or two ago, uh, somewhat redacted. Uh, yes. What did those yes. 28 pages um, have to say? They had to say in considerable detail about the links between the two of the hijackers. Remember, there were 19 altogether, but two of them, called uh, Al-Hazmi and Al-Madar, who spent part of 2000, the year 2000, in uh, San Diego um, taking flying lessons and doing things, of, other important things if you're about to be a suicide hijacker. And these were basically, the, the, this is what was uncovered in the files of the FBI office in San Diego by an investigator for the Congressional Committee called Mike Jacobson. So what was in the 28 pages that were censored for the many, many years, um, the rest of us couldn't look at. It detailed all the, li the links between the hijackers and local agents or officials of Saudi Arabia, such things as their, um, uh, well, the payment, from the thing that really left out at me was the payments that went from the Saudi embassy in Washington, from the wife, indeed, of the Saudi ambassador, not just the wife of the Saudi ambassador, but the Saudi ambassador himself, Bandar bin Salma, uh, the Sultan, to um, 
figure in uh, a, a woman in San Diego who was the wife of a Saudi agent called Basnan, or someone the FBI thought certainly thought was a Saudi agent, who then signed over the money to the wife of another Saudi agent called Bay, uh, Bayoumi, who was basically the case, seems to have been the case officer for the hijackers in San Diego. Met them soon after they arrived took, uh, in L.A., took them down to took them down to San Diego, found them an apartment, opened, helped them open a bank account, lent them money, paid their rent, introduced them around to various people. So that was the sort of core. There were other things like, um, 28 pages, like what seems to have been a dry run in 1999 to, to Saudis traveling at the expense of the Saudi embassy in Washington, flying across the country on an American Airlines flight, attempted to... Um, Again, they asked the way to the restroom on the plane, but seemed to be paying a great deal of attention to how to get into the cockpit. And the flight attendant said, so, no, no, the restroom is that way. And they went on trying to sort of open the door to the cockpit, which uh, certainly in the view of uh, of the original investigators and now of the uh, the lawyers representing the 9-11 uh, survivors and, and you know, widows and orphans and so forth, I think consider was a dry run by people who are effectively traveling on the Saudi government dime. A couple of things are striking about this. First of all, uh, when these 28 pages were released, uh, even though they were partly blacked out, this received a brief amount of coverage, but really hasn't entered uh, uh, the collective consciousness in a significant way, has it? No, it's interesting. The, um, it's, it's interesting what the media tells you something about the media in this country, the, the mainstream media, that all the way along they've sort of, wanted to buy the official story. Um, there have been almost no challenge to it, right going back to, you know, to the original investigation. I mean, you know, the fact that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi, um, you know, should have, you know, stopped, <laughs> provoked a lot of inquiry there and then. Um, when the Senate, the House, sorry, the Intelligence, the Congressional Intelligence Committee came out with their report, which was pretty damning in all sorts of ways, I mean, still alluded to the Saudis, here and there, and certainly was very rude about the FBI, suggested you'd be totally reformed. The media didn't really take that up. Then you had the official 9-11 commission, which um, very clearly was set up basically to whitewash the whole role of the Bush administration of the White House, uh, and by extension of the, of the Saudi Arabians. In fact, we know from reports of people who worked on the commission how it was steered away from pinning the blame where it belongs, you know, A, on the Bush administration and B, on the Saudis. And the press, there was never, there was an excellent book about it by a New York Times reporter, Phil Shannon, called The Commission. But, you know, that it came and went. And somehow, ever since then, as you know, it's never been considered a fit subject for discussion. Whereas, compare and contrast with, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, in, in the Harper's article, the, it wasn't that the Bush administration was saying there was no state, organized state apparatus behind the 9-11 committee, which to my mind clearly there was, which was the Saudis. Uh, the Bush administration said, no, there, there was a state apparatus, but it was the Iraqis. And, you know, invaded Iraq with disastrous consequences, we all know, on the basis of that. Uh, and plus the old classical allegations about weapons of mass destruction. The press bought into that. The press believe the official lie and have studiously ignored the truth that's been staring them in the face all the way along, as you say, right up through the release of the 28 pages last year. And the second thing that leaps out at me is, of all the people involved in this congressional investigations, only one, uh, former Senator Bob Graham, uh, has made a big deal out of it. Uh, what happened to the other guys? Uh, they sort of went off and did other things. I mean, um, what's his name? The co-chairman was... Uh, Shelby, uh, you know, Republican, he hasn't said squat about it since. You know, in fact, none of them, I can't even think of who they were, but none of them have ever spoken up. And the only, the only people who really aggressively in the Congress have pursued this have been, um, well, the people in the House, uh, include a hero of mine, Walter Jones, a Republican uh, who, um, as I describe in the piece, has felt enormous guilt ever having voted for the Iraq war. And he now writes to every single casualty in the in the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, 
to the families when anyone's killed. They get a letter from Congressman Jones, and he says he feels his guilt over the lives. He very he really led the charge in getting the 28 pages released. There were a few Democrats, but no one really from the active Senate. Well, I should say Schumer, because you know he's got a lot of a lot of a lot of voters in, are in New York, um, so he's had to be at least sort of on the face of it as you know he helped he he sponsored the bill the sponsored JASTA, you know the which by which i mean the 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 law that got the law changed thus allowing us to the families to sue saudi arabia but yes, uh, previously saudi brand, arabia could not be sued under sovereign immunity correct right 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 well you know you could the law sort of said it could but they the saudis had managed to get some legal judgments from the judges in the case to say they couldn't be absolutely accurate. But Bob Graham, you know, he's pursued it all the way along. And people, I mean, it's worth thinking about the fact that Bob Graham was saying, look, the Saudis, you know, we've got to look into the Saudis. And the administration was saying, oh, no, we've got to invade Iraq. And Bob Graham was saying, oh, by the way, I've looked at the evidence for Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. I've read the, you know, the, the National Intelligence Estimate and, you know, it's not there. So I think Bob Graham, there should be, if we ever put up any more statues in this country, there should be one to Bob Graham. <laughs> he read the report that Hillary Clinton chose not to. Exactly, exactly. And he was begging his colleagues to go read it, which they all chose, preferred not to do. Yeah, they didn't want to be confused by the facts. Uh, now, wh what about the history of this lawsuit? Uh, where did it come from and how has it been progressing? Initially, there were many lawsuits. I mean, everyone sort of jumped in. But the leading lights were really um, the Kreindler Law Firm in New York, which had just collected a huge settlement on the Pan Am 103 lawsuit collected from the, Lib from the Libyans. And then there was uh, Motley Rice in uh, South Carolina, who'd made even more money out of the uh, tobacco settlement, many billions. And then there was a firm in the firm in uh, the Cozen firm, Cozen Roberts firm in uh, Philadelphia, who represent insurance companies, and they've made a speciality of when an insurance company has had to pay out, they look for the person who sort of might have caused the event that, on which the claim was paid. So those three have been the, the leading lights all the way through. Uh, so the lawsuit uh, it really you know, got going in 2002, and as you mentioned, for a long time they basically got nowhere because the Saudis lawyers said, hey, sovereign immunity can't touch us. And they kept appealing that. It went up to the Supreme Court and back twice. They hasn't done them much good. They hadn't, the judge they've had for a long time is a Judge Daniels, Joseph Daniels, who's widely renowned at being the slowest judge on the federal bench. I don't think it's much of a coincidence that he got the case. I think there some of the people suing some of the uh, you know widows <laughs> I think the basically the estate is just waiting for them all to die so that the suit never goes anywhere but anyway so the so it really you know they had some little through some very artful lawyering or smart lawyering I wouldn't say artful but smart lawyering they kept the suit alive and the big and you know I think really starting in 2009 uh, which was when the Obama administration filed with the Supreme Court to say this, you know, this case should be rejected, showing where Obama was coming from. They decided that they should try and change the law, the sovereign immunity law. And the bill was, I think, first introduced back in 2009. Again, got nowhere for a long time, couldn't get out of committee. You know, the administration was doing its best to block it. And finally, in 2016, due to some very adroit lobbying by the by the families, by the lawyers, it suddenly sort of burst through. I think the declining reputation of Saudi Arabia had something to do with it. Um, and as I say in describing the piece, they got the the Congress to pass this bill by a very considerable majority. The administration put out a whole lot of very fraudulent propaganda about how this would lay open this could you know really tear international law to shreds and everyone be every nation would be suing every other nation which really was ne never going to happen and certainly hasn't happened obama vetoed the bill you know making a lot of fraudulent statements along the way the congress overrode the, the veto the only time that's happened to obama 
So now it's law. And, you know, it's worth, you know, the Saudis haven't given up. As I describe in the piece, um, they, their lobbyists sell them on the idea of going out and recruiting veterans, flying them to Washington, putting them up at the Saudi expense at the Trump Hotel, and sending them off to lobby Congress on how this law would actually could affect veterans, who are the only other group in this country that have the moral standing of the 9-11 families. So uh, what they didn't tell the veterans was this was all a Saudi initiative, and they their very considerable bar bills at the Trump Hotel were being paid by the Saudis. And a lot of them were very outraged when they found out. I'm speaking with Andrew Coburn, Washington editor of Harper's Magazine. The Saudis have hired, what did you say, 15 PR firms to handle this case? Yeah, lobbying firms, PR firms. Actually, at one point it went up to 28. They sort of cut back to 15. I mean, the, the bill runs at well over a million dollars. <clears throat> so just to finish answering your question, the legal status as of now is the plaintiffs filed their amended complaint, you know, the complaint you know, made possible by the passing of the law in uh, earlier this year. The Saudi lawyers responded to it, I thought rather feebly, but still, um, at the beginning of August. Uh, the plaintiff's lawyers get to respond to the, and the Saudi lawyers have made a motion to dismiss. Um, the other side gets to respond to that by November. Then you'll have oral arguments. So, the case could be really moving forward. I mean, could be actually get to be a proper case with uh, depositions and so forth um, by the spring. <laughs> a long time since 9-11, but still, it's happening. Uh, I know you have to leave soon. I have uh, two more questions, which are somewhat more speculative. Okay. Okay. One, one is, well, they're both motives. <laughs> one is, why would the Saudis sponsor uh, such an act of terrorism against uh, a country that uh, uh, defends them? There's two, there's several of, you know, aspects to that. One is, I mean, without going into their motives, we can see that that's what they do. For instance, there's now, you know, ironclad evidence that they've been sponsoring the Taliban that we've been fighting for 16 years. I mean, whether or not you think we should be doing that, uh, putting that aside, the, you know, the Saudi, our friends, the Saudis, have been financing an, a, a group, an entity with which we're in armed conflict and that, you know, many Americans have been killed. You know, we know that you know, the Saudis have been carrying, carrying out terrorism all over, or sponsoring terrorism, certainly in Syria and, uh, and various other places. But, I mean, that's one clear example. So the Saudis seem to have no qualms about financing armed action or violent action against the United States. Why would they attack the United States in the way they did, or quite possibly did, in 2001? Well, it goes to the, you have to go to the heart of what the Saudis State is, and the, the Saudi Saudi Arabia really is represents is governed by an alliance between the House of Saud, this family, Saud family, and the Wahhabi clerical establishment. And you know it actually goes back centuries, but the deal has always been that we, the Wahhabi clerics, will support you and give you legitimacy, the House of Saud, to be the uh, legitimate rulers of Saudi Arabia in return. You support us in our mission of uh, proselytizing and waging jihad or, you know, sort of carrying out our very aggressive proselytizing uh, efforts and, you know, you know, implementing our ideology. And that seems to... So what seems to have happened, in the, and the, the complaint, the amended... Compl you know, the, it's very instructive of this, the, the lawsuit filed by the uh, plaintiffs uh, has a very interesting history in this of, of going into how when al-Qaeda was being set up at the end of the 1980s Afghan war, the people who were setting it up and, you know, closely involved in it were these were agents of the Saudi state in, in the capacity of uh, officers of what they call um, charities. I mean, that's the direct translation, Dawa, um, whose mission is to spread the faith or spread the Wahhabi faith. And you see time and time again someone, some gentleman who is, you know, a senior executive of the, or official of the World Muslim League, which was just one of these things, was simultaneously making deals with bin Laden to, you know, to work with al-Qaeda to use their facilities to help set up attacks. So it's, 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 it's you know, it's this, you, you have to remember that the Saudi regime is an alliance with jihadis. 
that's what they do. I mean, obviously, not everyone in the Saudi regime thinks it's a good idea, but certainly at the time of 2000, you 9-11 and the years before and even the years afterwards, this was very much an element of the Saudi state. So that's the best explanation I, I can think of. I mean, all we know is that it happened, and there's, 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 you know, there is this undeniable evidence of collusion with officials of the Saudi state at quite a sort of significant level, which you know can't be explained away. And final question, uh, uh, second set of motives, the United States. Why does Saudi Arabia get a free pass on such egregious behavior? It's an appalling regime in so many ways. It's become so so ingrained in the American state, and there's so many interests at stake. I mean, I, I, you know, I think um, obviously the arms sales are hugely important. You know, the, the, the many billions. That's what Trump went to sort of, you know, went to do, went to arrange. Um, it's considered a sort of vital interest of the U.S. to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. For a long time, the U.S. was getting cut price oil. Not many people realize it. There was actually a a subsidy on Saudi oil sales to the U.S. I mean, that, that seems to have gone away now, but that was in place for a long time. For a long time, there was an agreement that in the Saudi-financed mosques around the world, that they would sort of, this was certainly in the days of the Cold War, that they would, you know, the preachers were to, under orders to sort of not to criticize the United States. Now, that's changed. But that, you know, that's all part of it. So that and, you know, not, let's not neglect the fact that a lot of people in Washington are on, the, are on the payroll. You've got these think tanks like the Atlantic Council, to name but one. Well, the Middle East Institute just turns out to be in the pay of the United Arab Emirates. I mean, that they, and the lot, you know, so many diplomats, so many former, former generals. I mean, I found when I was doing a piece about the Yemen war a year or so ago that the, all the, uh, military U.S. generals who commanded the U.S. military training uh, missions in Saudi Arabia. We have 2,000 people there sitting in a compound outside Riyadh and have had for decades whose mission is to train Saudi forces and, by the way, sell U.S. defense systems. When they retire, I wouldn't say all, but most of them, they then go into business, set up consultancies or go to work for the Saudis, or, you know, again, selling arms to Saudi Arabia. So there's this whole sort of infrastructure in Washington, in this country, that feeds off Saudi Arabia. And I think it's, a, it's something that most people don't realize that, how sort of pervasive that is. Um, you know, law firms here, lobbyists, as you mentioned. I mean, there's so much money flying around in Washington, which depends on the Saudi relationship. And so this, uh, this lawsuit is quite the skunk at the picnic. Absolutely. I mean, people get, especially when you talk about JASTA, getting the, getting the law changed. I mean, otherwise quite so sober-minded people get hysterical. I mean, one, I mean, I was talking to one very level-headed former ambassador, very respectable and smart guy, and I brought up JASTA. He said, it's an abomination, just an abomination. You know, just, I mean, I, you know, you, can't, you explain to them, you know, it's very limited, it, you know, it, it's... You know, the idea that this has somehow brought down the whole entire fabric of international relations. Uh, you know, they get hysterical about it. Uh, it's uh, hard to... Well, it's certainly there. I can't really... I've done my best to explain. I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, but um, it's not going to go away in a hurry. That was Andrew Coburn, Washington editor of Harper's. His article, Crime and Punishment, appears in the October issue of the magazine and on its website at harpers.org. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Dega. Yeah. Sogon på tuben. Sogon på klubben. Sogon på gatan vid huset i staden exakt där hon bodde. Sätt henne galen. Sätt henne på spader. Sätt henne skrika helt högt. Skratta. Sätt henne vanlig. Ibland hon går all in Mörda din dalin Sätt henne punk, känna sin hacka Sätt henne balin Ibland hon är sörjlig Ibland det är soligt Ibland hon får nog, skriker ut mord Slag som pistoler Sätt henne ljuga Kasta ut stolar Sätt henne sjuk, sätt henne stark Sätt dig vid bordet Har någon sett henne? Har någon sett henne nu? Har någon sett henne? Det Yeah 
tar en stol och sätter dig Flytta nära baby Aldrig sett någon bättre Ta en stol och sätt dig Flytta nära baby Aldrig sett någon bättre that is son of Set Henna, pardon my Swedish, by Silvana Imam. Next, Assad Haider. Left social media has been full of chatter about, among other things, of course, Mark Lilla's new book, The Once and Future Liberal, which argues that the Democrats have paid too much attention to the lamented identity politics, whatever that means exactly, and Ta-Nehisi Coates's 8,500-word article in The Atlantic, The First White President, which is his designation for Donald Trump, as if all his predecessors but one, including the 12 who owned slaves, were not white. While I confess I haven't read Lilla's book, which my next guest describes as a hardcover blog post, I've suffered through several published interviews with him. His argument is hardly original and not very noteworthy, and was beautifully taken apart by Beverly Gage in a New York Times review. Lilla acknowledges that the civil rights and feminist movements once had their place, but are now hopelessly obsolete and, as Gage puts it, counterproductive, sucking energy away from the simple and urgent task of getting more Democrats into office. For Coates, Donald Trump represents a triumph of whiteness, which is true enough, but hardly breaking news. His exposition of this thesis, delivered in his characteristic hyper-literary style, as Heider says, is a moralizing discourse which monopolizes the discussion of race, yet fails to propose either a coherent theory of racial oppression or a viable program for eliminating it. Racial hierarchies exist not through material social relations, but in our heads, indelibly. Around both analyses, Coates and Lilla's, lurks the specter of the white working class, which, as Heider says, Coates invokes in order to exclude it from anti-racist struggle. This term, white working class, deserves to be retired. That entity doesn't exist in any meaningful sense as a coherent formation. Yes, there are white members of the working class, but by using the term white working class, one is reifying it, separating it off from the broad multiracial working class, and thereby undermining solidarity. Anyway, enough of me. Here's Assad Haider, editor of the Webzine Viewpoint. We've got uh, conversations going on about uh, two writers uh, who, uh, on first examination, might be seem to be in opposition to each other. We've got uh, Mark Lilla, uh, his new book, and uh, the interviews he's done around it, which are highly voluminous. And then we have uh, a piece by uh, Tanasi Coates on the Atlantic website, which is, uh, I believe, the preface or uh, to his uh, forthcoming book, a very long uh, piece, itself a substantial down payment on a book. Now, you find affinities between these two characters uh, who might be seen in opposition. Let, let's talk first about Lilla and his complaints about identity politics and what it's done to the Democratic Party. You get this uh, kind of analysis in Lilla's book uh, that coming out of this op-ed piece that the loss of Hillary Clinton was due to uh, the turn of the Democratic Party towards identity. And this, for Lilla, is a turn away from the classical liberal politics uh, that were best represented by FDR. What Lilla wants us to do today, or what he wants liberals to do today, Lilla is not on the left, and uh, he has no uh, intention of pretending to be. What Lilla wants liberals to, to do today is not get caught up in this uh, kind of language of the resistance and going on marches and so on, uh, which he sees as of a piece with identity politics. He wants us to go back to the classic electoral strategy, winning elections and winning elections by appealing to what unites people and uh, what citizens can hold in common. Well, the thing is that Lilla, in so doing, totally misses the whole history of uh, actual structural change in the United States. He, he references the civil rights movement on the one hand as a kind of reasonable version of identity politics, one that didn't go too far, but then on the other hand as a kind of attempt to uh, speak to, to fundamental American values and uh, defend the rights of citizens. But what he misses is that these movements were mass movements that were fundamentally about changing the structure of society and were inseparable from programs for economic equality. We know that the, the March on Washington was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It uh, had roots going back to the coalition uh, between labor unions and socialist organizations in the black political world from the 1940s. So that's a kind of history that's left entirely out of Lilla's account. And uh, I argue that that is also left out of Coates's account. 
Uh, let's just uh, take a little detour here. Uh, you mentioned the New Deal and the alleged, alleged universalism of uh, FDR and his program. But a common left critique of uh, the New Deal, which got resurrected during the Clinton campaign uh, to defend her against Bernie Sanders, is that the New Deal was uh, deeply racist, that it, uh, it excluded black workers. Uh, that was the origin of redlining in the housing market uh, and that uh, we shouldn't over-idealize the New Deal by any means. Um, what do you say? to that? Well, I would actually respond that it's true that we should not over-idealize the New Deal, uh, but not specifically for those reasons. I think that one of, the, uh, one of the other fundamental problems shared by both Lilla and Coates and by a range of political commentators today is a fixation on individual politicians, Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders, and any movement uh, that emerges today is seen the women's march fits in with the Hillary Clinton side, whereas, you know, maybe the Occupy movement before was a precursor to Bernie Sanders. Uh, well, this is a reductive way of understanding how social, social change actually happens. The history of the New Deal is not only the history of uh, policy reforms by a president, but also the history of uh, the unprecedented growth of labor organizing and of very bitter, drawn-out struggles by labor organizations that changed the balance of class forces in the United States. If you don't have that, then you don't get these kinds of reforms. And that's what uh, liberals like Lilla are unable to understand. Well, they also forget that communists played a fairly large role in making the 1930s happen. Absolutely. And, you know, Lilla uh, doesn't want to acknowledge that at all. Uh, he, he derisively refers here and there uh, to socialists and says that, you know, that's really a foreign imported vision. Uh, if we want to have an American progressivism, we should read Teddy Roosevelt and skip over the jingoistic parts. Well, I don't know what parts are left when you do that. <laughs> I think he also said in that passage that you know, we should skip uh, the Verso catalog too, right? Exactly, yes. As a, I was a Verso author long ago. You're a future Verso author. Uh, we must object to this uh, <laughs> rather strenuously. <laughs> yes. Now we have uh, Tanasi Coates with this very long piece in The Atlantic in which uh, he argues uh, that Trump is the first white president, which made me scratch my bald head uh, many times. Uh, we had slave owners as presidents. We've had white supremacists like Woodrow Wilson as president. I'm not quite sure of the sense in which Donald Trump is the first white president. His opponent, leading opponent, Hillary Clinton, also white, and you know, she won the popular vote. What do you make of this claim? What it illustrates is a very uh, blurry conception of what whiteness actually is. And Coates uses very vivid language uh, to describe whiteness as a kind of evil, dark force. And he even cites uh, historians to show the history of how this thing, whiteness, which we take for granted, was actually formed. But despite citing the history, it remains something practically ahistorical, so that now all of a sudden we have a white president and the slave owners before weren't. If we look at this history, which, which Coates cites, uh, it's a history of indentured servitude and slavery and the slave trade and the various uh, transformations that these different forms of forced labor went through uh, in the process of becoming free labor and the way that different kinds of laborers were classified according to racial categories that were, that were uh, manufactured. Uh, we don't have any regional or cultural affiliation which is white. It's manufactured out of a range of different uh, immigrants from different regions of Europe. Uh, and it's generated as a political category uh, of elevated status over slaves. And so that's a very specific material history. And while Coates is aware of that history, he nevertheless turns whiteness into something which floats above it, which floats above these material relations. And so instead of a program to change those material relations, we get Coates kind of demanding repentance. I never understand uh, what, uh, I don't know, debased uh, um, foundation types call the action items are out of this. Uh, what, having indicted whiteness for all these many sins, and God knows white people certainly have a lot of uh, things to answer for, having completed this indictment and even embraced it uh, and uh, flagellating, flagellating oneself over uh, inherited white privilege. 
which I can do, not you, then uh, what do we do with that? I never quite understand where we go from there. Do you have any sense of what kind of uh, political agenda this analysis suggests? It's more of an intellectual agenda that we get out of this particular article by Coates. And uh, one thing it comes to at the end is uh, the question of the white working class, which is now you know constantly thrown around. Are you a defender of the white working class? Uh, any reference to any kind of economic policy is often uh, derided by liberals as pandering to the white working class, which is intrinsically bad because they are responsible for the election of Trump and they are racist and misogynist and the rest of it. Well, Coates quotes some figures to show that that's really just a kind of uh, just-so story that liberals tell themselves as they look out over the vast uh, Midwest and think all these uh, illiterate people out there uh, put Trump into office. Well, uh, it doesn't line up like that. In fact, people who made white people who made more money, Coates points out, were more likely to vote for Trump. Uh, white people who were employed were more likely to vote for Trump than the ones who are unemployed. Uh, and of course, uh, there's the problem of uh, low voter turnouts and the rest of it. Coates does this in order to indict white people as a whole. He wants to respond to the people arguing about the economic issues by saying, we don't even need to consider that because whiteness itself, you know, uh, overwhelms everything. And um, that's a very specific kind of agenda. It's one which closes off the possibilities for an actual political program because a political program which responds to the racist policies of Donald Trump and to the structural racism that we still live with in our society is one which will involve white people actively rejecting this social formation of whiteness and recognizing for that for the vast majority of them it's in their interest to do so. Uh, the places in the United States, and I quote in my article the black communist Harry Haywood describing this, the places in the United States where racial oppression was at its worst, where plantation slavery was centered, uh, those are the most impoverished regions of the United States because white supremacy was the most powerful weapon uh, that the capitalist class and the planter class had against the possibility of working class insurrection. As you say in the piece, uh, you know, this book is, what, 1948, uh, and you could say almost the same things with you know only minor revisions now to apply to the exactly. present. But Coates uh, writes as if the white working class is in the driver's seat, uh, not white elites. Right. He, he, that's what he suggests about the present. But curiously, he never points to the instances uh, throughout the whole history stretching back to the 17th century that he describes, he never points to the instances when there was active resistance to whiteness and to capitalism, and that that often represented coalitions between white workers and black workers and uh, immigrant workers. If you look, for example, at the industrial workers of the world or at the early Communist Party, most of them are immigrants. Uh, a lot of them don't speak English. Uh, they've just come from Europe. And they're just being given a choice between assuming uh, a kind of class understanding of their position or joining the club of the white race. Since the 19th century, there's been a, a very successful project of getting uh, European immigrants to join the white race instead of opposing the capitalist system. And there were exceptions, like the IWW and the Communist Party and many others. And uh, any program for ending racism should be uh, based on trying to turn those exceptions into the rule. I'm speaking with Assad Haider, editor of Viewpoint magazine and author of Idols of the Liberal, the American Dreams of Mark Lilla and Ta-Nehisi Coates on that site. Both Lilla and Coates seem to share the idea that the left is somehow culpable in, in this uh, confidence trick, uh, this creation of whiteness and you know this uh, perpetuation of this notion of a white working class um, as somehow special or privileged. Uh, it was not the left that was doing those things. The left was one of the few places uh, in the society where people were actually fighting racism, not, uh, not, not promoting it. Absolutely. And uh, that's part of why... You know, you see, uh, 
Coates's work is often described as pessimistic, and uh, certainly the history of racism and the current political situation are cause for pessimism. But pessimism isn't the end of the story, because when you look at this history, you see moments of courage and resistance. And unfortunately, if you decide to leave out the communists and socialists and labor organizers, you get rid of most of the resistance. Because whether it's the uh, labor left coalition that uh, built up to the civil rights movement or the um, Communist Party organizing against lynching uh, in the 20s and 30s or the rise of socialist and communist perspectives in the black power movement in the late 60s and 70s. If you leave out the anti-capitalist perspective, you've left out most of the resistance to racism in U.S. history. And so the fact that Coates has gone into reading history with that agenda means that he ends up telling a story which closes down the possibility of uh, making change. Yeah, I can understand if you excise capitalism from uh, the picture, that uh, sort of <laughs> feeds a pessimism. Like if you don't really fight that beast, well, I don't know what else, how else you accomplish uh, any a- attempt to undo racism. Absolutely. He seems to locate the problem uh, in, in consciousness rather than material relations. It's not uh, residential segregation or, or differences in inheritance or you know, a school, differences in schools uh, or you know, ongoing employer discrimination. It's uh, um, um, something in uh, essential white attitudes which exist apart from history and, and, uh, and, and society, it seems. Yeah, and it's very, what's very strange is that um, Coates actually is constantly referring to this history, which shows that capitalism and racism are are completely intermingled throughout the history of their development. But then uh, racism seems to split off and become its own force. Now you have uh, from all sides in these uh, you know toxic discussions, you have the idea that race and class are these two abstractions uh, and that we could determine, you know, maybe by writing on a chalkboard, which one takes precedence over the other. Well, you know, that's not a way that you understand the material world. Uh, in reality, there's no alternate universe in uh, in which there is a raceless capitalism or the formation of white supremacy in the absence of a slave trade. We, I mean, we can't even conceive of those things because they're absurdities. We have an actual real material history in which those two concepts, capitalism and racism, describe part of a unitary process. And that's what it means to have a a materialist analysis. And it's not necessarily easy to do. But when Coates splits racism off so that it becomes its own independent, malevolent force, uh, he's really doing something no better than someone who might be derided as a class reductionist who says that, well, all the problems to do with racism will be solved by an economic program because economics is really more fundamental. Well, they're really both um, kind of dealing with abstractions and not really looking at the material history. Yeah, so much of this debate does occur on such an abstract level, like, you know, the race versus class thing. I mean, these are two words. There's no no richness uh, to this analysis at all. Uh, but you know this term white working class now I'm finding very exasperating lately. Uh, I don't really understand what it means. There are certainly white people in the working class, but the white working class does not exist as some sort of unified body. It seems to me to undermine any attempt at solidarity. Uh, it's not good for analysis. I mean, how did this term achieve such currency? The reason the term has currency is um, because of the high opinion that uh, affluent coastal liberals have of themselves. Uh, Any turn in politics that disgusts them can be projected onto people who are not educated, uh, who can't afford uh, to live as enlightened a lifestyle as them or whatever. But as you point out, it's it's, a complete fiction because there isn't an actual monolithic political behavior of the white working class or whatever you want to call it. But my objection to the term goes a little bit further, because uh, as I've argued, the history that Coates reviews uh, shows, uh, despite his interpretation of it, what it really shows is that whiteness was specifically a way to prevent people who were exploited from forming 
uh, a class collectivity, one which would cut across races. And so insofar as we can talk about a working class politics, that's a politics that rejects whiteness. It's against whiteness. It's a contradiction in terms, in this sense, politically, to talk about a white working class. Uh, if we're going to have a working class politics, it's going to be one that cuts across racial boundaries, and it's going to be one in which white people are able to cast aside this label and cast aside the privileges that come with it so that they can act in a real coalition. I'm a critic of identity politics, and uh, I think it's important to criticize, but I think that white socialists have to be cautious because these inequalities and disparities uh, do exist, and they have to be overcome so that we can act together. Uh, solidarity has to be actively produced. You have to be aware of that. That's why you can't become like Mark Lilla when you criticize identity politics. We do see that spreading on you know, some parts of the left. You know, last year's election, I think, has caused a lot of people to lo uh, lose their minds. And it's kind of disturbing. <laughs> you do see, you know, uh, people who self-describe socialists uh, or leftists who are saying we need to talk to the white working class. And often that seems to mean that we have to stop talking about racism and sexism and homophobia and these sorts of things because it might offend people. It might alienate them. We need to, to you know, make connection with the normies. How do we balance this? Right. The way you balance it is by having organizations that can grow and that can do things that overcome the ideas in people's heads. I don't think it's, you know, when if you have a discussion about well, will, like, Joe the plumber be okay with working in a gender-neutral bathroom, like, you know, unclogging the toilet in a gender-neutral bathroom or something? Then you construct these ridiculous scenarios about, uh, you know, he will never be comfortable with transgender people or something like that. Well, if you, if you restrict it to people's prejudices and existing ideas, then you never really get anywhere. What you have to do is have actual practical activity that changes those relations and therefore changes those ideas. If you have uh, organizations which actually do something better for the community, which, which change a situation uh, that affects everyone in a given community, and you have transgender people working alongside uh, your Joe the Plumbers, then those kinds of prejudices can be overcome through practice. When socialists uh, talk about the white working class, another sad thing is that they, they do the same thing that Coates does and they forget the important role played by uh, black socialists and communists and uh, other people uh, in the movement against racism, the, the way that they were a fundamental part of the anti-capitalist movement in the United States. It goes both ways. Uh, and so, for example, you have something like uh, the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton uh, talked very specifically about how the survival programs of the Black Panther Party, the, the free breakfast programs, uh, they, they weren't just a way of providing for people who needed things, but they were also a form of political education. Because when you had all these mothers bringing children to get a free breakfast from the Black Panthers, and they were told, this is a socialist program by a socialist organization, that fundamentally changes what they think socialism is. There's another way that some of this, you know, new kind of social democratic left uh, makes a, a, an error like Lilla's in the focus on forming uh, political organizations and, and supporting electoral candidates. I mean, that's, uh, it's another discussion. It's something you can do. You uh, don't write it off, but uh, you can't dismiss community programs because that's the way that you actually change the way people think through practice. I like the idea of DSA uh, organizing uh, um, free breakfast programs. Absolutely. I mean, and I know that in New Orleans, they were fixing people's taillights. And it's exactly that kind of thing. And, and you know, the, uh, the Communist Party in the 30s, what they did in Harlem, for example, was uh, when someone was being evicted, and, you know, the landlord takes the furniture out and the communists would just come and put it all back in and say, you're not evicting this guy. And uh, eventually people come to understand that when you're going to be evicted, the communists are on your side. And uh, 
that's much more useful in terms of changing people's perceptions uh, than criticizing identity politics on the internet. Obviously, I do that, so I'm setting myself up for uh, an attack there, but I do it specifically because I want to encourage uh, the kinds of solidarity and practical organizational perspectives that would lead in this direction. Well, I guess we'll both have to don aprons and, and uh, pick up our ladles and get to work. <laughs> Absolutely. That was Asad Haider, editor of the webzine Viewpoint, which you can find on the web at viewpointmag.com. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some more Swedish music, this Girls from Beatrice Eli. Till next week, bye. I've been listening to you breathing I've been trying to count sheep Yeah, I've been staring at the ceiling for so long Hoping you would come Thinking of my teacher Yeah, my sixth grade teacher With her long dark hair It always works Getting me around